I'll probably do that. Good morning. I'm really glad to be here. Be and uh, I, uh, I apologize for being late. There's a, once every three months, uh, there's a, uh, a telephone conference call that I uh, teach. So I've just been teaching for an hour, so I'll be happy now to meditate and settle down a little bit. And I always think about, uh, well, I simply cannot end at one building at 9 o'clock and be here at this building at 9 o'clock. It doesn't, doesn't work. And we have more than usual people here, but I have a note that says that 16 students from the Marin School are here. It's hard to hear me? All right, well, good. Laura's still here. She'll fix it. Are we doing something wrong? Oh, it's backwards. No, it's not. It's not? Nope. Put that near your mouth. Let me come over. Okay. Oh, can you mute it for a second? Yeah. How about that? That's better? Juanita, it's okay? So we have 16 students from the Mern School here. Who are you? Stand up, the whole 16 of you. There you go. Are you still in Sausalito, the Mern School? Now, where is it? It's in Santa Venetia. Okay, it's a, it's a high school. What course are you part of? Why are you here? Um, we're taking a vision quest course. This is a vision quest. And there's a, but the whole school isn't here. Did you just elect to be here and other people did something else? Yeah. That's great. Did you decide as a group or was this an option? Who wants to sign up to go to Spirit Rock? Do you have the teacher who organized it with you? Oh. <laughs> My grandson graduated from the Marin School. That's a wonderful connection. Uh, well, I'm happy that you're here. Are you taking a religion course at the Marin School, or is this because this is a class about? Um, meditation in, that's not really, it's a course about the tradition of Dharma, which is a word that means what the Buddha taught about how the world works and how, what peace of mind and heart depend on and uh, what are the practices that we can do in our lives uh, with our families so that we're happier and so that we make a better world, which I'm sure that everybody is interested in, really, how are we going to make a better world? Well, thank you for coming, all of you. Make yourself at home. How many other people have never been here before? So why don't we try to stand up if you've never been here before? The stand up is nice. I'll read you a thing that says stand up from, from uh, well, maybe not the second, uh, but one of the things I want to teach about is Bhikkhu Bodhi saying, 
stand up with me. Let's stand up together, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, because it's a very important teaching about in this time of uh, unusual uh, national and international importance uh, that people who have a dharmic understanding about responding to suffering in nonviolent ways and with compassion are needed more and more. He says, let's stand up together. What's your name? Jakey. And where do you live? I live in San Francisco. That's good. And this is your first time. Why did you come today? Oh, this is the right place to have come, JP. Thank you for coming. What's your name? Uh, Penny. I've actually been to the... It's beautiful, isn't it? Huh. <laughs> Who could not feel better here? I had a friend visiting from the East Coast last week, and I brought her out here to see Spirit Rock. And uh, she came in and she said, you know, people will feel better just sitting in this room. They don't have to do anything or say anything. Uh, the last time, that, but uh, one time that I brought a friend here, I said, well, I have to go to work this morning, come with me. And I brought her with me and she said afterwards, she said, that's not work. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really not work. Anyway, what's your name? Linda. Uh -huh. From Eugene, Oregon. Oh. Uh -huh. But we're here, Marilyn and I, for the uh, Intersanga retreat that just ended. Oh, that was great. With Anna. Um, Matthew. 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 Yeah. Ben, Buddhist Insight Network uh, put it on. Buddhist Insight Network. Because Anna is also teaching. So Matthew was teaching. Anna was there. We're, this is at the retreat. Yeah. Anna's teaching upstairs. Oh, Anna's teaching upstairs. This was up here. Yeah. And you're on your way home. I'm on the way home. Oh, well, that's great. And this is the first time getting to be in the new building. Ta-da! Really, it's great. You know what? I'm sorry to say because you can't do it more, but we have uh, non-residential uh, retreats now, where people come and stay all day, yeah. and then they go home, sleep, come back, sit again. They don't have to pack and all that stuff. Yeah. But you have to pack, so. <laughs> was that a great retreat? I'm sure. Yeah, it was wonderful. Very yeah. inspiring. We started a sangha in Eugene, and so we just got so much. Fantastic, fantastic. And what's your name? Marilyn. Also from Eugene. Yes, and um, we had been part of, in San Francisco, part of Mission Dharma with Howie Cohn for yeah. many, many, many years. Yeah. Um, I have listened to your wonderful meta talk, so I feel like uh, my heart is just like crazy that I'm in your presence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're very dear. Thank you very much. You're Welcome. Very dear. Thank you. And she's from Brooklyn. <laughs> but you actually don't speak like that anymore. Well, that's interesting that some that a New Yorker would say that. Most people say it like after two minutes of my talking. See, but you said New Yorker, and you said talking. Thank you. You did not say, you did not say after two minutes of my talking. I can still do that. When I, 
I'm originally from Brazil, but I've been living here for now. Uh -huh. And I came because I'm very interested in learning more about this. Oh, good, good. I'm glad you're here. I'm Daniel. Um, also, like living in New Valley and from Brazil. Um, I came. Well, she showed me um, the video. I think just like you talking and. Uh, Okay, then we're here. Does everybody who... Good morning. So, uh, I'm looking, but it must be that Ace is not yet back. Because if Ace were back, he would say, what we always do at this point, Sylvia, is we do not plunge into a talk. We talk to each other for a minute and say hello. So, talk to each other. Say hello to somebody you don't know. Say hello to somebody you don't know for a minute. I often think to myself in that minute or two that we spend talking to each other uh, about all the people who said, oh, Buddha's... When I first was teaching, and I'd go back east and I'd go to a family event or something, and someone would introduce me and say, this is, uh, this is my cousin Sylvia, and they'd say, oh, hello. You know, that, uh, 
that Buddhists do not speak in a normal tone of voice or out loud or uh, demonstrate emotion. Or, so I always love it that we, if they say talk to each other, everybody remembers how to do that. It's also like at the end of um, a retreat where people have been going around for four days or ten days. Or at, at this point, where are we in the year? We've just finished two months. Some people sat up in a hill, up on that hill, for sixty days. It's two months, and left. And the whole time, there's you know everybody's. And then at the last day, everybody's alert. You see, there's somebody in there, really somebody in there, and they come to life. But it's a, it's a lovely moment. I'm uh, very much interested in uh, the particular this spring issue of Buddha Dharma, and I'll talk to you about it and some other things like it, Buddha Dharma. I'd like to show you the cover of it. Buddha Dharma is um, a quarterly journal published by the same people who published Lion's Roar. Uh, and it's, uh, it's quarterly, it's very thoughtful, and it's about Buddhist ethics in the 21st century. And uh, it's really, uh, it's very stirring. And just as uh, you, when you talk to each other, are challenging a notion that's not there anymore, anyway, that Buddhists are quiet. Uh, This whole uh, um, magazine issue is challenging the notion that Buddhists are uh, principally contemplative. And what they do is they just work on their own minds so that they're able to shock absorbs the the tensions of the world, and that it's a monastic practice, and uh, also giving the lie to that that that's not so. That that the idea of ending suffering really means ending suffering on all the levels of suffering, not only the suffering of one's own mind from stories that we create in our mind, but the tangible suffering in the world of peoples. And that uh, really, that uh, uh, always one is concerned with uh, um, soothing the suffering in one's own mind, but not for that end, but on behalf of being able to address oneself to the real suffering in the whole world. I've been very uh, watching and thinking about this evolution in Buddhism in this country because it really. is my experience in the last 40 years of being in the Buddhist community, this, this particular Buddhist community, that I've noticed a change. I really began my practice in 1977, and now we're coming up to, uh, we are, and we're in 1917, so it's 40 years this summer. Uh, we'll be, we should have a party on the 7th, 7777 was the day that I went on retreat for the first time. So that doesn't seem like a lucky number in Reno or something. I think that's a very good number, 7777. But we'll see. But it's really what what we have been emphasizing in the teaching has changed since I started. And now it is very much what difference are we making in the world. And I'm very uh, inspired by it suddenly. coming all together. So I really want to talk about that. But I wanted to read you one line from a new, uh, very lovely uh, translation of the Metta Sutta. 
And uh, remember, the, the people who are here for the first time will not know that the Metta Sutta is a, is a teacher. A sutta is a sermon. It's a sermon by the Buddha that's quite short and uh, is one side of one page. I think it has 28 lines or something. And it says, this is what should be done for, by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech. And it's got a whole, 13 lines, I think, of admonitions about how you should behave. And then the middle part of that sermon is about uh, how you should train your mind so that it actually can behave that way with kindness towards all beings. How you can really recognize greed and hatred and confusion in your own mind. And the last five or six lines of it are about the kind of peace of mind that you would have, the liberation of suffering that you would have if you could actually do all that. And often we read the whole sermon here. And the reason I brought it out is we, we're going to sit and have some quiet time for meditation now. And I like to think of something new to do as we sit. And there's one line of this that... Uh, that I like very much. This is a translation by uh, John Peacock in uh, last year. So the, the translation that we've been using is probably a couple of hundred years old. But it says, wishing uh, in gladness and in safety. This is the, the overall point that it makes, that you ought to behave morally and train your mind so that you would be able to wish in gladness and in safety May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are short or tall, big or small, living uh, and to be be born, may all beings be at ease, omitting none. And I've often said that the really, really radical teaching of that whole sermon are the words omitting none. Because a lot of people could say, I've had many people, it turns out, uh, are able to say, you know, I could wish wholeheartedly for the well-being of the whole world. You know, why not? Think about people here and there, far and wide, trying to make their way through the world. I wish them all well. Of course I do. But my next-door neighbor, (laughs) whose uh, fig tree is growing over onto my property, and the figs are dropping off, and it's making a mess there, and... I went and I pruned off those, those branches that were making a mess, and she came out and said to me, and I really can't forgive her for that. And, and really, well, my brother-in-law once said, well, this happened, but really, omitting none, may all beings be at ease. It means letting go of all our grudges and everything that we don't like or didn't like. You know, that... I, I'm, sometimes I tell about, if I say to people, you see this water here? It looks like real water, right? But that's because you can't see. It has a certain herb dissolved in it. And that herb, if you take a drink of this water, will erase every grudge you have from your mind forever. You won't even know. How many people would take a sip of this water? Not everybody, you see. Not everybody, so I'm not marking you down for that. How about the Marin Academy people? Did you put your hands up for the grudge? (laughs) 
you know, you think about it, why would you not take it? But, you know, people sometimes say, I, you know, I, how would I know who I was if I didn't remember who I was mad at, you know? <laughs> or if I didn't remember what my values were. So it's a very important thing, omitting none. And it doesn't say, may they flourish terrifically, may they... It just says, may all beings be at ease. And I think how I understand that is that it recognizes that as human beings, we fundamentally are not at ease. Once we're born and on our own and up, we always have to worry, is, you know, am, I, am I safe? Am I okay? Am I going to be okay? Are the people I love going to be okay? So it really looks at the fundamental fact that it's a vulnerable... Being born it puts you in a vulnerable position because you don't know what could happen to you or anybody else ever. It's a really universal vulnerability no matter if you're on one end or completely the other end of the economic spectrum of the world or the political spectrum of the world. We're all vulnerable to loss. And really it's, it's based on the idea not that you like everybody in the world and certainly in current political climate not helpful to like what everybody's doing, but not to have ill will in one's heart. I can wish that people would change what they're doing, but really it's about ill will. And really, I, so I want this to have us sit doing a variety of meta phrases in our mind, but I wanted to tell you that the phrase omitting none is not in John Peacock's translation, which is a beautiful translation, and maybe I'll read it to you later. But instead of saying omitting none, he expands it a little bit, and he says, may, the, may they, to all these people, whatever living beings there may be, whether weak or strong, tall, large, medium or short, small or big, seen or unseen, near or distant, born or to be born, may they, without exception, all be happy-minded. I love that. Isn't that nice? All those people, de -de 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 all the ones that are in the classic sutta, may all of them, without exception, be happy-minded. And we don't so much say happy-minded. Uh, I think that the, that the Pali term, uh, if we could hear the sutta chanted in Pali, which is the original language, in which it would have been chanted, it would, it would say happy-minded. Because when I first learned metaphrases from my teacher, I learned to say, may I feel safe, may I have mental happiness. And I knew that mental happiness didn't mean feeling pleased. It meant not feeling unsafe. I really think fundamentally it comes down to that, not feeling unsafe. So we'll sit, and I'd like to suggest that for our meditation, you could, of course, just sit quietly and feel yourself breathing. That's always a good thing to do. Or you could say, back, say to yourself, every time you breathe, for instance, breathing in, breathing out, you could say two phrases, may I feel safe, may I feel happy-minded. 
May I feel safe. May I feel happy-minded. Exactly what you say is not as important as saying it over and over on this breath, and then the next breath, and then this breath, and the next breath. You do it slowly. May I feel safe. May I feel happy-minded. May I feel safe. May I feel happy-minded. After a while, you might think to yourself, I had enough of this. I'll just do my breath in and out, in and out, in and out. I wonder whether I should shop it on the way home or whether I should stop. And in the post office, they have a package for me. I wonder what's in that package. May I feel safe. May I feel happy-minded. May I feel safe. May I feel happy-minded. Does that seem reasonable for you? That every time the mind gets distracted, you remind yourself, hey, we got caught somewhere. You don't even think about why you got caught and think, may I feel safe? May I feel happy-minded? May I feel safe? May I feel happy-minded? Okay, let's do it.
One of the customs that we have here is when we're meditating quietly together, when we come to the period, we come to where that period of meditation is ending, we reserve that space for people to mention people in their lives that aren't in the room, sometimes they even are, that they're thinking about with especially loving thoughts because they're people who are in a special situation, like people dealing with uh, difficulties in their lives or people different difficulties that are painful, some, some changes in their lives that are maybe happy but also difficult and how we feel about them. Just to know, just to know that uh, we mention them in community so other people can think about them with us. So we share them. But part of the way that we actually study and become aware of the fact that everybody is a vulnerable person with people that they care about. So people share if they feel like it. I feel like uh, mentioning the fact that my uh, Irving Cornfield, my good friend Jack's brother, died yesterday morning uh, after a long illness. And uh, he was 71 years old, as is my friend Jack. He was his twin. And he died yesterday morning after a long illness with his family with him and his brother visiting. And he's known for a while that the end was coming. But still, it's a difference in the world for everybody involved. And his children and his grandchildren will feel the difference. And his many students as well. Who are you thinking about this morning?
For all of us who've mentioned anybody's name, we all become teachers for each other in the... As we share, we are supported by the presence of other people who feel our hearts. And we are supported by knowing that each of us is not alone in this world of vulnerability and caring. And that every one of us, unique in our life, is, different, is the same in that we all love what's dear to us very much and want it to thrive. Want for it for its lives to feel safe. Want to feel happy-minded. May all of us who mentioned and all of us who thought of and didn't mention and all beings everywhere be consoled so that they feel safe. Be cared for so that they feel safe. Be held with compassion as we all make our way through these lives. <coughs>
I think what I really have all assembled that I want to teach about uh, really comes under the framework, of, a large framework of uh, uh, addressing the question of uh, relevance of Dharma practice to everyday life. You know, that I, I think um, uh, in the beginning, uh, when 40 years ago when I started, people were undertaking spiritual paths where they'd say, now I have a spiritual path. And it seemed different from their regular lives, that they had their lives, and he was their spiritual path, that they, and myself included, didn't really have a sense of why I was practicing. It was just a hip thing in the, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, you know, to go to a meditation class. And that uh, over the years of my practicing on retreat and at classes, uh, and uh, then becoming a teacher, uh, I often had people ask me the question uh, at the end of a retreat. They'd say, how do I take this practice into my everyday life? And we normally mentioned at the end, of, in response to that question 40 years ago, we'd answer, try to find time every day to sit quietly, try to take some time don't listen to too much television, wise things to do. But we actually gave them contemplative techniques as the answer to that, to take these contemplative techniques into your everyday life. What we didn't so much say is that mindfulness practice is everyday life, or better yet, everyday life is mindfulness practice. Everyday life is mindfulness practice, because from morning till night we have to make decisions whoa, this is happening, this is what comes up in me, what do I feel like doing now? Would that be a good thing to do? Is that going to add to suffering or decrease suffering for myself and all beings? And for a long time people asked, uh, people critiquing uh, Buddhism or how they understood Buddhism for, oh, everybody is now interested in going to Buddhist retreats, but how about... Uh, Social activism can't just go to retreat. I remember people saying, you know, it's a retreat from the world, uh, and going on retreat is a retreat from the world, not saying bad on retreat. I think they're wonderful every once in a while in order to sort of reset the thermostat and deepen one's commitment, perhaps. But that life isn't a retreat, life is life. And... Uh, for some period of time, people asked about uh, is there social, what's, what's the role of social activism? I think for a long time I might have done my answer as being, well, uh, it, we actually do this contemplative technique in order to uh, cl clear our own minds, in order to arrive at wisdom, like it's something that's going to arrive down the road, and at that point, Compassion and concern for other people will be self-arising. That's a textbook answer, but it's not a very good answer because it sounds like it all depends on my getting enlightened or at least erasing all the confusion in my mind before that. And that hasn't all happened yet. And it's also true that in my own life, before I was introduced to Dharma, uh, I would have said that my... Uh, my passion in life was spiritual activism, you know. I was thinking back this morning, 
uh, about, I don't remember why I started to think about it. I was thinking about uh, marching down uh, Miller Avenue in Mill Valley with the uh, Women for Peace and the Mothers for Peace in the 1960s or 70s. Uh, were you marching there, Lynn? Or, no, you, Lynn, is, Lynn is way younger than I am. So. <laughs> but um, I would have said that, you know, that, that was my passion. Uh, but my spiritual passion was then starting to go to mindfulness retreats. And I wouldn't be say that everything has not become conflated, but that social activism, I think, is inherent in spiritual practice. It is spiritual practice. And it's a spiritual practice of responding deeply to the suffering in the world. Uh, it's really expanding the meaning of suffering from the suffering that's created in my mind when uh, I can't deal with the reality of what's in front of me. Uh, it's a suffering that uh, I'm about to say about the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I would want to say that I'm sure now that his understanding of suffering is about suffering in the broadest sense, suffering of the world in response to what's going on in the world, uh, and social activism as a response to it. But in uh, there's a film that I like very much. It's made 10 or 15 years ago called Kundun, about the uh, young life of the young boy who became the current Dalai Lama, in which he says, uh, He's reciting the Four Noble Truths, and he says this, the the cause of suffering is um, the cause of suffering is uh, attachment or some unfeeling thing, just a, a rote kind of an answer. And his uh, teachers correct him, and he goes back and he says, "I am the cause of most of my suffering because of the habits of my own mind." And I love that line out of there, because I think that's an amazing thing for an eight-year-old to say. I think it's an amazing thing for a 48-year-old to say, or an 18-year-old to say, or anybody in between, to say, I create the suffering in my experience because of the habits of my mind. And principally, one would go on normally to explain that by saying, that the principal habit is the habit of thinking it should go my way or that it should please me, and that when, uh, when things are not pleasing me, and that it takes into assumes that there's a me in here that ought to be pleased, which is a whole other story, but the attachment to that me who's never pleased anyway, because once you get one thing fixed, it's something else. Uh, uh, a lot of people have gotten a lot of airtime out of it. It's always something. What did you, Gilda Radner said it's always something. Um, the um, Ruth Dennison, who died in recent years in her 90s, I think she was a venerable Dharma teacher in, my, in our community, used to say in her still quite thick German accent, there's a hole in every canoe, darling. Um, <laughs> but, but aside from that, that kind of everyday wisdom about everything happens to everybody, which everybody laughs at, the thing is, when we listen to people in their prayers this morning, my mother this, my uncle that, my next door neighbor, people, everybody here has something of the nature of somebody I care about is suffering because this is a vulnerable thing, this body in this life. And we all care about it. There's that level of suffering. 
and really what the what the uh, the in that in the very small context of what's suffering in my mind suffering in the mind is when it's a, 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 um, closely or um, when it's defined as a personal experience it's the mind unable to accept what's happening and I think that and we've talked a lot about people who get a really terrible diagnosis and they say this isn't what I wanted but it's what I've got I have a friend who's a very dear friend to me who has a disease with a, quite a terrible diagnosis and a quite a terrible prognosis and she knows it and she says uh, she said to me the other day she said an interesting thing she said a friend of mine told me that I was taking this too calmly I should be angry uh, at it and maybe if I express my anger I'll feel better she said but I don't think so and I said I don't think so either and she went on to say who would I be angry at I mean you get a terrible thing you get a terrible thing uh, and then if you get angry you just increase the terrible you increase the distress in your mind she said, but, I, you know, I'm terribly grieving. I said, that, you should be. I'm grieving the end of my life, which is looming up. But grieving is not the same as being angry. Grieving is just being sad, really very sad. And in the sadness, being able to appreciate with love the people we loved and the life we had. Everybody dies. Nobody wants to. Sometimes if people are in terrible pain at the end of their life, they hope to. But, but we hope for people, even then, that they won't suffer. But everybody leaves this life. But really, the suffering in the world, which I, I, haven't, I hadn't really thought about this a whole lot, because it was not just in my consciousness to think about it as much as now. I thought that the small amount of suffering that I could talk about as a Dharma teacher was really the suffering that is a habit of mind. It's a habit of insisting that things should be different from how they are. That one of my, I always tell the story about my friend who said um, about um, her ovarian cancer that she uh, really eventually died of. She said... Um, Said I went around, I, as long as I was thinking to myself, why me, why me, why me? I took such care of myself, I'm really healthy, I'm really young, why have I got this, why me? She said, as long as I thought that, I suffered terribly. And then suddenly one day I thought, why not me? It's one of the things that happens to people, and it happened to me. My friend now with this really dire diagnosis, why not me? I'm a person. This is what happens. I wish it hadn't happened. I grieve the fact that it happened. But it happened. I think that the realization that we are all equally vulnerable to any minute, it could be us or somebody that we love or care about. Sometimes I think to the degree that we realize it, some people say, well, you know, it's very macabre to think about that all the time. And, Maudlin, and you wouldn't go out of the house, and how could you enjoy yourself? I think it's really a more of a call to enjoy those moments that are lovely, and more of a of a um, of a mandate to.
to, to make sure that we're taking care of as many people as we can take care of and soothing the world. Sometimes I think the world is a big intensive care center on the way to out, you know, you're in the intensive care and then sometimes you have a little bit of a reprieve, but sometimes you don't. And when you go in a, in a hospital where, and you suddenly go down that corridor where there's intensive care, you all lower your voice because you realize. But what I am adding to that now is, and in addition to, we all suffer because we don't know how to deal with that fundamental problem of not being comfortable in our lives and being vulnerable. That the world is actually suffering in worse, worse, ways worse than individual personal worries in terms of the suffering of poverty and the suffering of war and the suffering of masses of people at the hands of massive of other people disguised as, uh, as sexism or racism or nationalism or religion. But actually what it is under all of that, they all are equally terrible, and all manifestations of greed and hatred and delusion. And the greed is the gr lust for power, the, the desire to want more for us or me and mine. And anger when it seems threatened. So I think now really is a, there's a couple of mandates that are... I want to talk about Bhikkhu Bodhi, talking about now is the time for Buddhists to really speak up. But I want to tell you, when, I, when I'm not here for a few week, I, weeks, I save up stuff because I see something and then I think I really have to share this. So that the days just before I'm back, I'm going through my stuff and saying, okay, what order am I going to show this? So here's a piece of stuff. Before I'm showing you this piece of stuff, because I'm going to talk about another piece of stuff that I carried around for a lot of years, um, it was a picture of a marine medic in the time that there was active uh, involvement in Afghanistan fighting. We had just entered the war there. And the picture on the front page of the New York Times above the centerfold, in color already at that time, and it was a hill in the middle of the war in Afghanistan. And there was a marine medic sitting on the hill like this. He was holding a child, like a two or three-year-old, a toddler. And behind him were people actively having war, people running in this side and that side with, with guns and running in a stance. So this is, you're seeing a movie of a war, and, and, and here's this marine medic sitting with a child, and it says in the caption, this is marine medic so-and-so, so-and-so from Texas, uh, who is cradling a child whose mother has just been killed in the crossfire. So y you realize that, and you realize it doesn't matter which crossfire killed that mother. And from the child's point of view, somebody's crossfire wasn't this side or that side. Somebody's crossfire just killed this child. You can see he's wearing a pink little something or other put together, cover, a blanket covering it. And I carried it around with me because I thought to myself, if you know, the whole world sees that picture 
and thinks a minute about this child's mother is gone because she was killed in the crossfire, would we not, not support any war ever? doesn't matter who did what to whom. It matters. We are all caught in the crossfire in a certain way. I remember I wrote a letter to the New York Times that very day, <laughs> which so far with all, which joins all the others I've written that haven't gotten in, but uh, saying that very thing about how can, how can not everybody stop? There was a photo in the New York Times and other papers as well in 1970, it's a, it's a photo that uh, is said to have ended the, the, the Vietnam War because it changed, it changed the uh, mood of the whole country. You probably remember it. It's children running down a village road in Vietnam. And uh, when I looked at it again this morning, I pulled it up. I, I thought, I can show it, because I'm about to show you another iconic photo. I was thinking about photos that changed the world. And I went to Google and I wrote um, iconic photo of Vietnam. And it came up with other photos, but it in the middle, because this particular photo won a Pulitzer Prize. Heaven forbid we should have to win a Pulitzer Prize for such a terrifying photo. And children running down a road. And I noticed in it this morning that there are soldiers behind these children. And, know whose children, soldiers they were, they're protecting them or running them out, but the children are running soldiers behind them in helmets with guns. Uh, a girl running in the middle of the photo, a prepubescent Vietnamese girl, completely naked, running down the middle of that picture. But I also noticed this morning there's a picture of a boy a little bit more in the foreground over here, and the picture of agony on his face and terror it's unbelievable. More, I remember at the time there was a naked girl that caught everybody. But if you go back and look at it, you can Google it, iconic photo. And the mood of the country changed. We can't do this. I'm thinking, what's going to happen that will change the mood of the world? By the way, that photo was recently somebody, apparently I, I, I Googled it, so it came up with a story that it just recently happened that somebody put that photo up on Facebook. And um, it immediately got taken off Facebook because they have an algorithm that looks for child pornography. And it's got a naked girl in it. And there was a hue and cry. And you know, I don't think any particular worker at Google said, OK, this is that. It's got an algorithm that picks out naked children. Uh, but there was such an immediate cry, outcry from the Google community that it's back up. They said, we have to get a better algorithm now, because this is the, I thought about it, the pictures of the war in prime time, I think, are there, you know, that we see on cable networks, pictures of all wars, are, are, are another form of, of um, pornography, or another form of um, use of the edgy to ensnare people. I really think the cable news is addicting, but anyway. I'm waiting for the picture that's going to stop it. This is a um, special section from the New York Times from a few weeks ago. And this is the picture. 
It's a section of, um, I can tell you what date it is, actually. It's Sunday, April 2nd in the New York Times, if you want to go and look at it. And uh, it opens... Wait a minute. How about come up here and hold this with me so we can just I can just show it to people. Just hold the other end of it. Oh, here comes that. You're fine. Here you go. There you go. There you go. Well, here, move it over there. Then I, I well walk, walk it around a little bit from here to here to here. So that's a picture, and it says these are these are people who are living. 100, 170,000 people are living on the road between Nigeria and Niger, halfway through, that some industry had started some building there, and then they gave up the building project and left. But people fleeing those countries, fleeing Boko Haram, really, found a little bit of a, of a community starting to have been built up. And a few years ago, they just stopped there in the middle of the road. And people going, it says in the... In the uh, in the descriptions and the commentary on it, the people are going from here to there, but they have no there to go to. They can't go either direction where it's going to be all right. They're exiled literally in the middle of a desert, and they're living there for... People have been living there for two years. They apparently have aid agencies that bring in food, although then the smaller pictures on the other side of that, pictures of women sitting in a clinic waiting with a child to be seen, and you can see that the child is incredibly, incredibly undernourished, malnourished, and dying. This is not even to speak about what's going on in Yemen and, and Somalia and Sudan at this point, that every day where we, the, the headlines will make such a big fuss about some not such a big deal, and they're not telling us every day that all over the world there are people in this terrible kind of condition, exiles from here to there, and really dying because of uh, first because of uh, uh, they're not safe from other people where they are, and in other places because there's such an extreme drought and such an extreme famine that they're not getting fed. And I think that individual people, if they knew that, like if enough individual people knew that. And if enough individual people knew what they could do, if we were not so distracted, that's a line from somewhere. Maybe it's from Neruda. I think that's a line from Pablo Neruda in uh, the poem, Keeping Quiet. If we were not so distracted, we would see that we were really killing each other and ourselves and by overwork and misuse and not taking care. I really like, by the way, this is like a huge leap, but I've noticed that people don't go say, don't say goodbye anymore. They say, take care, take care, take care, take care. I think that would be a great thing if actually everybody took care or thought about, is there some way I could help you take care of yourself? <laughs> so what I want is for something to happen like a tweet that'll be the ultimate tweet, or a photo that'll be the ultimate photo, like the Vietnam that will say to people, we have got to stop being entranced by... I think we're... I, never mind me, you may not be, I am a little bit too addicted to the cable news networks. 
because they not only tell this intense news that is important to me, but they tell it in a dramatic style that my sense is, is addicting. Somebody said to me on the conference call earlier this morning, someone said, so how do you get over the addiction? I said, I try to renounce watching any TV, and I try to read a newspaper every day that I think tell, is telling me enough of, of what's happening in the whole world and here. I thought if I should... Uh, uh, I thought about uh, talking about this. I had to talk about uh, how this relates to dharma. Is this just a political speech, or am I just trying to encourage everybody to vote the way I do, or to make more phone calls the way I do, or whatever? But I think it relates to dharma because it really, uh, that the suffering of the world, there are all kinds of suffering. There's the suffering that is the suffering of one's own mind that doesn't, is unable to accept, I have this terrible disease, it's not what I wanted, it's what I've got. But that's just this one level. But I have this mind that uh, really, really uh, has a grudge against somebody uh, but I, that I can't put away. And now I put it away, I feel better. That's also suffering in the mind that you don't have to have. But suffering in the body and suffering in the world and killing the planet is another level of suffering. Actually, in the Buddha's discussion of dukkha, which is the word for suffering, he says this whole enterprise is dukkha. We always are suffering from the loss of somebody or something, and mostly suffering from other people behaving out of lust and out of greed and not knowing that they're doing it. So that, in fact, the part of the Eightfold Path that has to do with morality and ethics is really maybe the whole of the Eightfold Path. My own, my own sense is that the path has moved that way in the last 40 years. It's 40 years since I began. And people at the time were talking about, oh, sure, you do your uh, social justice things, but you need a spiritual path for your mind to really feel the greatness and the awe of creation. I think so. Along with the doing the work in the, crea- in the community with the suffering. And I think it wasn't so actually emphasized in the early days. People didn't want to hear about that. They wanted to hear about their own. I, this is my view, so I'm thinking about all the people listening somewhere to what I'm saying, and this is going to go up on Dharma Seed. I think that people were interested in a more, myself, I was more in, interested in, in an exotic and ecstatic state, and special, that was spiritual. The fact that I was marching in Mill Valley, that wasn't so spiritual. That was what you did because it was the right thing to do. And I'm going to end up an old woman who thinks that the right thing to do is also the most spiritual thing to do because that really is spirituality in terms of we are our brother's keeper. And uh, I think that because my brother is me. I feel my brother's pain. I think that that's really true. I think that people looked at that picture in Vietnam and thought, wait a minute, we're doing that to people. That's some mother's child that's in that picture. And there has been a change. This is Bhikkhu Bodhi now. Bhikkhu Bodhi was... Uh, he, he's a Bhikkhu Bodhi is 74. Uh, he was born in Brooklyn uh, and went to... Uh, went to uh, Brooklyn College and then University and then went to Sri Lanka 
uh, studied philosophy, went to Sri Lanka to ordain as a monk. He's been a monk ever since. And he was the um, uh, head of the Buddhist Publication Society in Sri Lanka. Now he lives in New Jersey and teaches in New York. This is Bhikkhu Bodhi writing an, an editorial. I recently came across a news report stating that 2,500 religious leaders had signed a petition urging Congress to reject Donald Trump's cabinet nominees as, quote, a cabinet of bigotry. I looked over the list of signatories designated by religion and saw only one who identified as Buddhist. This observation reinforced my puzzlement as to why Buddhist teachers and leaders in the U.S. are not more outspoken. Considering that Buddhism is widely hailed, preeminent religion of peace and compassion, why aren't we more visible? And then he goes on to have several different reasons. And one of them, I actually, I thought, whoa. He said, I'm, I think I'm guilty of that. He, um, he said the one, two, three, four reasons, which I didn't think were mine, but anyway. One of them is, he said, one of the reasons is people think that uh, 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 enlightenment comes through meditation in a meditation center, not through looking at the world. I think it's through looking at the world. You look around enough and you say, wow, people are really suffering. People used to say that, that Krishnamurti said that, he was in the Hindu tradition. Um, maybe not so many Buddhists, maybe before the Dalai Lama said that. The Dalai Lama, uh, this is a, like, I'm going to come back to Bhikkhu Bodhi because this is the right point to say. A few summers ago, I went with uh, a friend of mine to Washington, D.C. for a week to hear the Dalai Lama give teachings on the, uh, it doesn't even matter, I don't remember which he, what it was a teaching on, but he did a week-long teaching in the, in Washington, D.C., in this immense auditorium. Uh, it's a basketball auditorium in, in Washington, D.C., 14,000 people in, in there. And uh, it's really awesome to be in a, in a situation where the auditorium is full and His Holiness comes out and 14,000 people stand up and do bows and prostrations. 14,000 people is very moving. And he said... Uh, well, when I came home, my friend Sally Clough, uh, who teaches with me here, said, said to me, oh, you went to the Dalai Lama in, in Washington, D.C. Did His Holiness say anything new? So I thought about it. And for a while I said, no, His Holiness didn't say anything new. Uh, uh, he was doing a Kali Chakra initiation. It's a formal liturgy. No, His Holiness didn't say anything new. And people always laugh, because what was he going to say new? I mean, he's really teaching what the Buddha taught. But His Holiness did say something new at that point, which I hadn't heard him say before. And I have, him heard, I have heard him say many times since. He says, I don't care. It's unimportant to me whether or not a person is a Buddhist. It's important to me whether they have ethical behavior. And that is a very major change for the leader of a world religion, well-known well all over the whole world, to say it's not material if he, if a person is a Buddhist. 
It's material if they are an ethical, if they have ethical behavior. And I think about that even as Buddhists, that, that, that he, from the point of view of a Buddhist, that that's what he says is important about Buddhism, that it strengthens ethical behavior, not as it strengthens your ability to calm down your mind or the ability to evoke exotic and ecstatic mind states, but as it clarifies your dedication to uh, ethical behavior, which would include when people are in trouble, going out and helping them. So here is, why aren't we more visible? The, the one that I thought I maybe had uh, not done the best is I was very careful all through last year during the election and even after the election, um, as distressed as I was, because I had gone to a program in a local church for, that was a political program, uh, at which uh, somebody spoke who was an active person of the Marin Republican Party, said to me, oh, you teach at Spirit Rock. I love Spirit Rock. I go to Spirit Rock all the time. I thought, oh, I have to be really open. I mean, Spirit Rock, we have a big sign outside. This is an inclusive place. Everybody can come here. I thought to myself, we can't mean that for everybody doesn't matter their nationality or their, I was just going to say about their race, but I've been reading a lot of material that says racism is a construct, so everybody's a little bit of everything. But anyway, leaving that, we'll use that anyway, it's a construct or not. Whatever their uh, racial heritage, maybe that's a better word, whatever their gender, whatever their orientation, whatever their what, I, we can't say except for Republicans that they're not welcome here. <laughs> that dharma is dharma, and dharma existed before that. So I've been very careful to avoid saying, or to go out of my way to say, I'm sure people voted in different ways, but actually I think some people maybe have voted different ways. I actually have people in my family, or my extended family, not my immediate family, who voted differently from me, but they mostly didn't vote for anybody because of strong feelings that they had. That's a whole other story. But, uh, but to be able to speak out, Bhikkhu Bodhi said, he said, if from, if, from, if from fear of upsetting others, Dharma teachers shy away from addressing these critical matters, their silence could be considered an abdication of their responsibility as spiritual leaders. I thought, ah, that's very interesting. Says, and then he goes on to say, we believe that every human being possesses, possesses intrinsic dignity, that everyone should be treated fairly, that those fallen into hardship should be protected and given the chance to flourish, that the resources of the earth should be used judiciously out of respect for the delicate web of nature. So soon after that, there was a widely circulated um, Uh, piece, in, I guess in, in the Buddhist magazines, but maybe in other places. Part of it's in the New Spirit Rock website. And uh, it says, uh, as long as a, this is from the Buddha himself, as long as a society protects the vulnerable among them, they can be expected to prosper and not decline. As the Buddha, in the last sermon that he taught before he died, 
And it says, Buddhism does not align itself with any party or ideology. But when great suffering is at stake, Buddhists must take a stand against it with loving kindness, wisdom, calm minds, and courage. Committed to compassion, we follow the example of the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin. She who hears the cries of the world like her, we listen to the cries of suffering people and do everything in our power to help and protect them. We believe, I'm skipping a lot because it's quite long. We believe that Buddhist teachers and practitioners should be among them, locking arms with all people of goodwill to protect the vulnerable, counter systemic violence and oppression, and work for a more just and caring society. Buddhism is respected around the world as a religion of compassion and peace. We are wanted, we are wanted and needed in this movement, and we have much to contribute. One thing binds us together, our commitment to ease the suffering of all beings. The Dharma is not an excuse to turn away from the suffering in the world, nor is it a sedative to get us comfortably through painful times. It's a powerful teaching that frees and strengthens us to work diligently for the liberation of beings from suffering. And this is the original one of this. It was signed by maybe a hundred people, and uh, everybody that you know at Spirit Rock myself and Donald and Jack and everybody that we know is certainly a signatory to this. By the way, speaking of Donald, I really want to announce that next Saturday, April 8th, um, oh, this is Saturday, April 8th, uh, Donald and Kazuhaga is our, um, Kazuhaga is a uh, uh, nonviolence trainer based in Oakland. Uh, he conducts regular trainings with youth, incarcerated populations, and activists. He is the founder and coordinator of the East Bay Peace Academy on the board of Communities United for Restorative Youth Yet Justice. And I think this would be a great thing to go. It's this Saturday from 9.30 to 4.30 in this very building. And... So I had what I had in mind, this was before this morning, I had in mind to bring that picture and talk about realizing what we, look at, the, look at what's happening, look what's going on. Uh, and I, well, the theme that I wanted to carry through it is the theme of being converted in one's understanding, uh, seeing things in a new way. And uh, I thought, well, uh, in the, in the Metta Sutta that I quoted earlier on, it says in the very end of it, by not clinging to fixed views, but the pure-hearted one, by not clinging to fixed views, is not born again into this world. That's the very end of the Metta Sutta. I wonder what this new translation of it makes as the new end. I wonder. I wonder. Well, wait, wait. Would you like me to bring this new one to you next week? I could do that. Um, Not Born Again to This World really uh, talks about, in my view, since I, I leave aside all discussions of 
Is there something that comes back, doesn't come back in the last world, in the next world? Because I, I don't talk about it because it's not something I personally experience and it's not something that I want to have a view about. I want to stay agnostic on that. Um, but I think I am born again into the world of suffering at least a dozen times a day, every time I get annoyed at something. Every time I get annoyed at something, I am reborn into suffering. Because whatever is happening, it's just happening. If I leave here and I find there's too much traffic to get to where I'm supposed to be by 12.30, they'll be annoyed at it or not. Uh, I'll get there the same time as I'll get there. The noise doesn't do any good. We sometimes think, you know, you ever think that when you're driving onto a highway and you think, oh, look at all these drivers, it's so crowded in Marin. How many people have had that thought recently? So crowded in Marin. You know, as if that annoyed thought could do something about it. Or that whatever we're annoyed at, annoyed at the, the politics, annoyed at so-and-so who we think lied, annoyed at this one, annoyed at that one. And that every time I'm an, I allow myself not only to recognize I don't like this, this is not what I agree with, but when I get behind it with annoyance, there's a, there's a metaphrase that says, may I be free of enmity and danger. It means really enmity. I can be annoyed with, oh, look, I don't. I wish everybody would get their own car. I do. I would get a carpool and not drive in their own car. I do wish that. Or I wish the governor would make the gas tax 10 times more so that people wouldn't travel. I wish that the other day. But then I thought to myself, wait a minute. Marin has no public transportation that works, really. There, um, uh, there's a tremendous number of people who are not uh, at all affluent who work in service industries in Marin, in all the restaurants and in all the nursing homes, who have to get here from someplace else to have their jobs that pay minimum wage anyway. Do I want them all to have to pay higher gas tax to get here? No, you have to think that, it, that it really, if I think things through, doesn't mean I won't have a negative thought, but then I think, wait a minute, what do you want to do about that negative thought? What do you want to think about? What do you want to learn more? I think, you know, that I think about people who have reputations after their life of being uh, inf unfailingly kind. I, I, that's what I would actually like to be, if that were that, much better than enlightened. I'd like to be kind, and also to myself, for having annoyed thoughts or any kind of thoughts that I have. Be kind to myself, it's the best I can do. I'm trying as hard as I can. So an interesting thing happened this morning. I got up and I was gonna come and show you that picture and say, um, look at this, when are we gonna think better? Well, I thought two things. First of all, I realized before I run out of time that I wanna talk about this is the week of the Passover. And it's a little before Easter this year. Last year they were quite coincidental. And uh, Jews all over the world will get together on next Monday night to have a Passover dinner together. How many of you will be at a Passover dinner next Monday night? So for those of you not going to be at a Passover dinner, uh, you might like to know that one of the things that people do, actually it is the most enduring connection that American Jews have to Judaism. Not, their, their biggest connection to Judaism is not belonging 
necessarily to a, a, a Jewish religious community, not even belonging to a JCC. Many people, JCCs are anyway not just for Jews. Uh, not Hanukkah, where you give people presents. Uh, the not Yom Kippur, which is, which is in a certain way noticed as the most holy day of the year. Uh, I like the fact that it's the most holy, it's supposed to be the most holy day because what you're supposed to do on that day is make sure that you have vanquished every last bit of enmity from your mind and made peace with everybody in your world. And that seems to me to be a pretty holy thing. But the biggest thing that Jews, the most percentage of Jews do, that says, what, what, they say, what do you do that's Jewish? They say, I go to a Passover meal with people. Passover meal is you eat a Passover dinner, but it's a ritual, it's preceded by a family ritual where everybody sits down, everybody gets a book. So you need how many books as your number of people. The books always look different because this is, uh, 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 it's a book that tells a story of why are we here and what are we doing. And it's called the Haggadah and it's the book of the, it's the liturgy of the Passover meal. And it tells you do this, do that, say everything. It's got, it interweaves blessings with, um, with stories of we were slaves unto Pharaoh in Egypt and the Lord with a long, mighty arm and an outstretched, mighty hand and an outstretched arm delivered us from Egypt. And you read the story and it, uh, everybody I know has different stories of when they were growing up and how the parents and the grandparents did it. My children and grandchildren will also talk about it and when we're gone, I'm sure. Uh, also, although there's a certain story that has to get told and certain prayers that have to get included at a certain time, uh, there are literally hundreds of various uh, copies of a Haggadah that you can buy. Um, and this one just came in my mail a week ago and I liked it so well that I phoned, them, uh, I phoned the American Jewish World Service and said, can you send me 20 of them? So they did. Uh, the American Jewish World Service is an organization rather like um, uh, the Red Cross or Doctors Without Borders or uh, Christian Charities or people that go into afflicted places and deal with them regardless of the religion of the people there. It's not serving Jews. American Jewish World Service was in, uh, in, um, um, in Thailand after the earthquake. And it was, it, 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 when some tragedy happens, it's like the Red Cross, it goes and does that. And it particularly uh, is, is interested in bringing relief to people who are in jeopardy all over the world, many times because of um, a lack of freedom. So this particular one that just came, which is new, I was going to read you a particular page. Um, all the pictures are people in different countries of the world who are refugees going from here to there. Because you remember in the Exodus story, which is a story that Martin Luther King used as the paradigmatic, um, we were oppressed and slaves, 
and uh, now we're free, going out from oppression and ending up in freedom, talking about all these various oppressions. And so you read them, and every year, uh, I don't every year get new books, but this year I did. It says, uh, it said that it, it says, among other places, several times, don't read this thing as if it's an historical account of what happened a long time ago. It's happening to you right now. And it's normal for me and other people that, whose houses I visit on other nights for them to say, uh, talk about the Egypt that you are in right now. And Egypt becomes a synonym for a place where I'm really suffering. Talk about the Egypt that you're in right now. I wish I'd left more time because we could talk to each other about the Egypt we're in right now. But it's a serious thing. Maybe think about it. I'll, I'll continue to talk about it next time. But it's a, even if... Well, here we go. As today's freedom seekers depart their own personal Egypts, oh no, as today's freedom seekers all over the world depart their own Egypts, because these people in Niger who are refugees, all the 60 million people who are currently refugees all over the world, not in a place that they are safe. As today's freedom seekers depart their own Egypts, they contend with obstacles as formidable as the raging sea. I'm remembering, John, what was the, what's that body of water that people crossed to get across to Greece from... When you went to... What's the body of water that those people were crossing? The Mediterranean, Adriatic. They, they formidable as the raging sea, and they find the strength to persevere through the challenges that lie ahead. We stand with them proudly through the duration of their journeys. It's critical that we support survivors of disasters, wars, and conflicts until they are able to rebuild their lives. We need to stand with religious and ethnic minorities as long as the threat of violence or genocide rages. We must fight for the rights of women, girls, LGBT people until true equality is achieved and we must persevere in defending the precious natural resources that sustain our world. So I was reading this. I got up this morning, and I was going to put that all together. And uh, I turned on the television to see what the weather was going to be so that I'd know what I wanted to put on. And actually, someone had turned it on to NPR. So I was at 5 o'clock this morning watching Channel 9, and they had a program on Reinhold Niebuhr. Reinhold Niebuhr, it, is that a name that you know? Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, eminent, maybe preeminent Christian theologian, teaching at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Uh, when I went to school on Morningside Heights, really, I'm so sorry that I was not more aware, I heard in this program today, that he and his wife, Ursula Niebuhr, he's dead now since 1971, but at the time, he was living on Morningside Heights, at, teaching at Union. His wife was teaching where I went to school, down the street, and they were having weekly seminars in their living room, talking about the new theology. And the new theology that they were talking about 
was Christianity with a social conscience. And he talked about this really being a move out of the church and into the community and into the world, recognizing that um, he said uh, about himself that the vision of uh, human beings as in the image of the divine, he said, um, I, I told myself that, I, I said that I didn't want to teach a, a, a theology that said, uh, uh, I guess in response to the times, he said, I, I don't agree with the theology of you should be true to your own, your own self, he said. Uh, I realize that I have some good things and I have some not good things. So I really need to be true to what are the good things and to recognize them. And it is his prayer that sounds so much like Buddhism and sounds so much like what people in 12-step programs say all the time about, may I have the grace to accept May, may I have the grace to accept with serenity those things I cannot change and the courage to change the things that should be changed and the wisdom to know the difference. So many people recognize that as a serenity prayer and don't know that it's Reinhold Niebuhr earlier in this century uh, speaking about what was the beginning of a really engaged Christianity in a way that it hadn't been before. I went to school on Morningside Heights in the 1950s, and uh, it was a time of passionate interest in Christianity being a political force, uh, the best kind of engaged uh, social activism. Paul Tillich was, on the, is, was teaching in the neighborhood. Um, who was the third person? Paul Tillich, um, Reinhold Niebuhr, somebody else I've forgotten. Um, hmm? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Thank you, Kate. That's it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I was just reading it this morning. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian who came here, was there for a while, before the war, went back, and was killed uh, in the war for his speaking out against Nazism. And he wrote very notably, you probably remember, they came for the communists, and I wasn't one of them, so I didn't speak up. And they came for the labor unionists, and I wasn't one of them, and I didn't speak up. And then they came for the, uh, uh, he said homosexuals, but we would say gay and lesbian. They came for people with different sexualities, and I didn't speak up. And when they came for me, there was nobody left to speak up. It gives you really shivers, doesn't it? In this time, I think it's a time when we all have to speak up, and we all know it. Anyway, here I got up at five, I went to see the weather, and I spent an hour listening to uh, the life of Reinhold Niebuhr, because it was so inspiring, among other things, because he changed his mind. I'm going to say that going back to the Buddhist thing about um, by not being um, by not being uh, he didn't say by not being addicted to by not clinging to fixed views by not clinging to fixed views he had a certain view and throughout his life 
He kept on teaching. He had a stroke. He got better from the stroke. He kept on teaching again. And he kept on saying, I have been reflecting more deeply, and I think now what I think is this, and now what I think is that. And uh, uh, he actually ran on the Socialist Party for president with uh, Norman Thomas. but he kept on changing his mind and bringing it up to date. And I think about the... the, the uh, Jimmy Carter, by the way, said, among other things, he said, um, he said I think that uh, there's a civil war going on on the battlefields of our own hearts. And he talked about the tragic dimensions of the human condition. I remember people used to mock a little bit Jimmy Carter because he was so plainly and openly and seriously, a religious man who felt that in Christianity he really had a a touchstone of what was the right thing to do. And I remember him saying, I sometimes have lusting in my heart. And say, oh, look at him, he's so silly. But to be able to say that we sometimes have that, but I don't act on it. That's a very refreshing view for a president. Uh, That was snide of me, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, take that back. That's not nice. That's not nice. I almost made it all the way through with nothing I needed to amend. So at the last minute, I messed it up. Okay. <laughs> so, um, no, but I also cleaned it up. See that? <laughs> Somebody said about... Oh... I'll pick this up next week because it's way too long to talk about in one time. That led me to then be listening to the whole program, which involved talking about um, uh, his friendship with Abraham Heschel and his friendship with Martin Luther King and Heschel marching with Martin Luther King in Selma and... um, Really talking about nonviolent responses to uh, oppression, and really when we think about, uh, I, I I'm very happy to think about Buddhism not as a religion of pacifism, but a religion of nonviolent yeah. response to oppression. And even I think one of the things that Niebuhr changed his mind about, and that put him on the outs with several people is he said, at some point, you might even need to take up arms if things are really so out of hand. I mean, when evil really is uh, consuming people, you might need to become an activist about it. And um, I guess where it ended is uh, talking about Martin Luther King's speech uh, a year before he died, on the, exactly a year before he died, he gave a speech at, uh, in uh, Riverside Church in uh, New York on, uh, in Morningside Heights. And he came and he had... Um, he said... Um, mm-hmm. His speech said he had come to see war, poverty, and racism as interrelated, taking on one necessarily confronting the other. He told his audience at Riverside that the United States was on the side of the wealthy and the secure while we create a hell for the poor. 
He was talking about Vietnam, but the sickness he named, that far deeper malady, could be detected in everything in America, he suggested. And uh, his friend, John Lewis, called him, because he'd read a copy of his speech beforehand, and said, don't do it. You know, you really, people are not going to be happy if you said that. Just keep it on to this country, and we're, we're getting people interested in ending and he said, I can't do that. I have to do it that other way. I would rather risk my popularity for my integrity. That's an amazing thing to say. So this is what I've been doing. You know, like <laughs> The other thing I did was I went to hear Chris Hayes uh, speak at Dominican College about his new book. Which did you, Were you there? Did I see you there? No, no but there were 700 people. It was completely sold out. And it was $35 a person to go in. But he was great, wasn't he? I fin yeah, I finished it. It's a terrific book. I brought it to bring and talk about it. I'll do that the next time. But, and I, I should tell you that, um, I meant to tell you this first of all. If I'd seen the book, I would have told you that people took, he took questions from the audience and I submitted my question ahead of time and they read my question and he answered it. My question was, how, tell me two or three things that you see going on that are going to make people like myself feel better <laughs> as we daily become distraught about what's going on in the news. And um, he said, you know, and especially that day the EPA restrictions were lifted. First of all, he said with the EPA, it's not a done deal, it's just a presidential government uh, edict, whatever they call that. Um, but it might not, it's not all over yet with that. There'll be, there'll be pushback against it. He said, that my, what I am most um, buoyed up with is the amount of public in, inspired activism that's happening. Everybody's joining a group, everybody's signing petitions. I hope everybody's doing. Everybody's going to something and contributing. And, uh, and people pay attention to that sort of stuff. It's not uh, we have an election and we go to sleep for four hours, but everybody's up. So I'm very happy for the Marin School have come. I'm very happy for you all having come. Please come again whenever you can. May all beings be peaceful and happy and take care of themselves. Oh, sorry about that.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.